You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Oh, the song is ending. That was perfect. I'll snatch that moment before another one starts. My name is Ashley. If I have not met you already, and I love Christmas. I love it. This is like amazing with the decorations and the smells and all that. Um, So I'm happy. I'm excited. I'm ready to celebrate. But more than just me loving the Christmas things, I hope you guys are ready to celebrate today. Today is joy. Today is celebration. Today is hope fulfilled. The hope of being given a gift that you have like really longed for, and knowing that there's even more of that gift to come. More of that gift and the abundance of it that's like beyond anything that you can imagine. It is here, it is Christmas, and there's more to come. He is here. Jesus is here. He has fulfilled the prophecy. It has happened. He came to us, and he is fulfilling prophecy. It is happening, and he is coming back, both and. Last week, we looked at Genesis 3 and its brokenness. God and man, man and man, man and himself, man and nature, brokenness. And even more than that, death entered into the world. At the fall of man, sin, which sin means like separation from God, separation from God and everything that he is. So separation from goodness and peace and joy and contentment and love and kindness. Sin entered the world and every aspect of humanity and nature. And not just like some cracks or like, oh, unfortunate circumstances or like, my plans are frustrated, like destruction entered the world. Destruction that prowls around like a lion, looking to steal, take, what's not, take what is not theirs, to kill, to destroy, to annihilate. That is what entered the world. Doom. And I know I might be unknown for being like a little emotional or like maybe even a, a little bit dramatic, but I'm not being dramatic here. This is real. This is true, this is devastating, and this is urgent. As we look at the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of humanity, loss came very quickly. Loss of relationship with God, loss of connection to everything that God is. Like total, again, I'm not, this is real, total collateral damage with one faint glimmer of hope. In speaking a curse over Satan, God says that he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Whoever this he is, there it is. There's some hope of evil being crushed. The promise is there because we are doomed. Now, it's Christmas, so why do we look at this? Because you can't have the elation of the resurrection without the despair of the cross. Right? The promise is here, the serpent crusher, the Messiah, the Christ. Hope is deferred indefinitely. For thousands of years, there is like some joy, there's some peace, there's some victory, 
but here, and I don't have to even tell you guys because you feel it too, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of slavery. There's a lot of injustice, brutality, destruction, death, and silence. The promise of the Messiah, the Christ, Christ just means Messiah. It's not like Jesus' last name. Um, the promise of the Messiah is coming in his line, that the Messiah is coming in his line, is given to Abraham. Okay? Abraham does not see this happen in his lifetime. In fact, 14 generations go by. And, like, there's a little hope of it because there's this guy named David who is the king after God's own heart. And it's, maybe it's going to be him. But it's not. Fourteen more generations go by, and then still nothing. Because now we're exiled to Babylon. It's looking really bad. At least we had like a guy before. And then 14 more generations down to a man named Joseph, a carpenter. And if you're familiar with the start of the New Testament, you might recognize this, what I'm describing, as the beginning of the book of Matthew. This is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ends, and there's like expectant hope there. And then there's 500 years of silence. And that silence is broken in the New Testament by a genealogy. That's how the book of Matthew starts. That's how the New Testament starts. God makes his, uh, a genealogy tracing the covenant that God makes with Abraham over these thousands of years. And this is like not part of this. This is a side plug. I don't know how you feel about genealogies. I don't know how you feel about like reading lists of names in the Bible. I usually am like pass, you know, like kind of breeze through that. I would encourage you not to do this with the genealogy of Christ. The genealogy of Christ at the beginning of Matthew is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. It seems like a bunch of names until you start to know who some of those people are, until you read the Old Testament, and you're like, I know that one, and I know that one, and I recognize that one. It is amazing. The genealogy of Christ is beautiful, and let me tell you why. Because it's a microcosm of the kingdom. There are people in there that should not be there, that would be shocking to be there. There's women in there. There's foreigners in there. There's big-time sinners in there, and they are named. They are given the honor in God's word as being in the lineage of Christ. It's so beautiful. Read it. Also, just another little side note. Of that side note, in the Old Testament, like if you go back to Genesis 5 and there's like the list of names, if you notice, it's like, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And in this genealogy of Christ, it is, there's life. And then the son was born. And then this son was born. And then this person helped out. There's life in it. All right, all of that, side note to say. That's in the book of Matthew. That's how chapter 1 starts is the genealogy. And then we get to the passage that we're going to look at today. It might be familiar if you were in small group this week, but we're going to go ahead and read it here. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of the Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary, which was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, 
Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. (coughs) Oh, sorry. Is anybody else? (coughs) Oh, no. (coughs) Shoot. Is anybody else getting rid of a cold? It's me. Okay. (coughs) The most wonderful time of the year. At this point, a member of the congregation finished reading the passage out loud. The rest of the passage reads as follows. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with this passage. Um, I can come at this looking to be like, yeah, I kind of know this already. I really, I can look at this and be like, I know. I want, but like, I want to like feel something this Christmas. Or like, well, this Christmas, though, I want to learn something new. Okay? And my encouragement to myself, and therefore out to your small groups, this week, was to see the miraculous with fresh eyes. And maybe, maybe it's not about me feeling something this Christmas, or maybe it's not about me learning something new. That would be nice, and I welcome that. But maybe it's to worship. Maybe that's what I need to do. (coughs) Guys, I love how much these verses here that seem to be about Joseph are deeply and profoundly and primarily about God. (coughs) Look at how God uses circumstances, history, scripture, prophecy, angels, dreams, visions, plans, timing, individual human hearts, coming to earth as a baby. All of these things, there's so much packed into these verses that tell us about God. This Christmas season, I would love for you and me to meditate on God. What does all of this tell us about him? And how can we be filled with awe and worship of him? (coughs) I'm so sorry, John. You have a mess to work with today on this microphone. Ah, Okay. While there's so much to talk about with Mary and Joseph, thanks, Kim. What a mess. Okay. That's okay. God's still God. Um... And that's where I want to stay this morning, camped out on God with a heart posture that's looking to worship. And for myself and for you guys here that are like doers and action-oriented, our application today might not be to do anything besides just slow down and wonder and awe and marvel at the Lord. And here's the thing. There's so much beauty about God and power in these verses that I even, like, even just worshiping, I need to narrow this down a little bit. So with the time we have today, I want to focus our worship on what God says about himself. 
There are two names given to Joseph by an angel for this baby, the Messiah who is coming. And I'm going to say, like, um, as much as what Joseph, how he interacted with Mary is so important, and he didn't divorce her, and they had their family, that's so important. The honor here that I feel like God is giving Joseph is to get to name God. (laughs) These two names. (laughs) There's two names that are given by Joseph, Jesus and Emmanuel. All right. Verse 21 says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from her sins. Jesus is Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek. Um, In Hebrew, that name is Joshua. Um, So fun fact, Jesus' name is Joshua in Hebrew. Joshua means God saves. It's very straightforward. It says it in the verse. Um, what What the name means and what it's for. I can't also, thinking about the Old Testament, help but remember the man of Joshua um, who led God's people to the promised land and the echoes of that, that this, this baby will be a deliverer. 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, straightforward. The prophet mentioned here is Isaiah. In chapter 17, sorry, 7, verse 14, he writes, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, plural, a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. There's a lot going on. The person speaking to you is coughing and sucking on this cough drop, and there's all kinds of things. But, like, I I'd invite you, Spirit, help us, to just sit in that. Sit in those names. Because they are not just factual. They're really, really beautiful. Will you sit in those names with me for the rest of our time here today? All of the Old Testament points to Jesus, to his coming, and to what he's going to do. Scripture and prophecy, even history and the circumstances of Israel— They all point to Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus and Emmanuel. God saves us by being with us. I've been in church most of my life, and I feel like I can be like, that's pretty. I need to stop. That's, That's application for me this Advent season. And, like, think of how profound that is. God saves us by being with us. That is distinct from all other religions and from all other gods. Our God loves us enough to save us by using his power to be with us. Look at all of scripture. God saves us by being with us. Uh, God in the garden with Adam and Eve, the burning bush with Moses, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night as God leads the Israelites through the wilderness, the tabernacle, the temple, the fourth man in the fiery furnace, on and on and on. God saves us by being with us. What better names for Jesus, right? Now, humans, we name things, we kind of name things aspirationally, 
or sometimes like reflectively. So reflectively would be like factually, like um, labeling it for what it is. So like the industrial revolution or the a world war or a housing crisis. We're like, oh, that's what that was. <clears throat> we also tend to name things aspirationally. Like if we think about products, maybe like the Mustang, right? Like this car is fast and wild. Or like Nike, which is the Greek goddess of victory. <clears throat> like you'll win. Sometimes we name people too, like children, aspirationally. So a lot of you guys may know this already, but Alan and I decided that we wanted to name our kids um, very intentionally. So after they're born in the hospital, the nurse is like, okay, if you fill out this birth certificate, then you can leave. And we're like, we're still thinking. But um, with each kid, beside doing, besides doing A's, we wanted to name them like aspirationally. Um, so their first names kind of um, like have a, like a vision that we want for their life. And then their middle names are like a life truth or a verse or something to ground them. So our oldest is Ava Grace. Ava comes from Eva, evangelism, bringer of the good news. <clears throat> that's, the, like, that's the vision that we want for her. And then the verses um, of Lamentations, which we didn't name her Lamentations, um, come like in chapter 3, talking about God's new mercies. Her middle name is Grace. So we were like, okay, bringer of the good news, do that by, through grace. And we've already seen that... Um, come to fruition with her a little bit. Our oldest is very performance-oriented and likes to be perfect, and we have to remind her it's by grace, like you're going to fail. It's by grace. It's by grace. It's by grace. Our son, um, Aaron, Aaron means messenger of God, and James, uh, his middle name, the whole book of James is awesome and amazing and helpful for life. If you haven't read it, check it out. Um, But we gave him... um, these verses in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, about intentionally choosing God. That's what we want him to be grounded in. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Flee from sin. And then the third one, she's a little harder because the names, a names, we got ourselves in kind of a box. But we, we worked it out. So her name is Amelia Bell. Amelia means hardworking, industrious. Bell means beautiful. So it's an adjective. So beautiful work is her name. And we looked at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 10, or 8 through 10. And the idea here for her is like to look for the work of God. Look at for it in her life as she looks at the world, see herself as a work of God. So these are concepts and biblical truths that we want to like speak over our kids' lives. We, there are things we hope for for them. Their name, as your name is sort of like your base identity, um, we want to ground our children in truth that, that might inspire their decisions and how they live. Rem- like kind of like maybe in those moments that they're encountering their lives of crisis or hardship or whatever, like reminders of who they are and to give some direction um, to live a vibrant life with Jesus because that's the goal that we have for them. But here's the thing, though. These names of Jesus, they are not aspirational. They are not wishes for Jesus' life or hopes, like as he's making decisions, they are true. In fact, they're truths, right, that exist outside of our world, outside of our time. This is who he is. Jesus is 
the Savior. There's not another name for him. He is the Savior. He literally will provide the only way for us to be saved from the curse, from sin, from death, from separation with God, here and now and eternally. At his birth, he is fulfilling the saving mission to humanity. It's who he is, the mission that was promised at the curse. Same with Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. He literally is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He literally comes to us as humans to be with us in our world, in our experiences, in our humanity. At his birth, he is reversing the curse of being separated with God and fulfilling the promise that it doesn't have to be permanent. Jesus is the snake crusher. God saves us by being with us. <clears throat> Again, this is what I want to like let sink in a little bit further this holiday season. This is insane. This is crazy, and yet it's true. It's so beautiful, and I just want to like sit in it. I don't know about you guys, but music helps me to sit in an emotional space a little bit better. Um, l- listen to the songs. Listen to the songs of Christmas, not all of them, but the, some of the hymns with fresh ears to, to worship. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Remember that from the curse last, last week? He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Jesus is the snake crusher. Hark the herald, we just sang it. Jesus, our Emmanuel, hail the heavenly prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glories by, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them a second birth. Jesus is the snake crusher. He has come to save us by being with us. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them from the depths of hell your people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Jesus is the snake crusher. I know I'm repetitive, but maybe it'll sink in, at least in my heart a little bit more, the more I say it. As promised, Jesus came to defeat Satan and the curse. So in Genesis, we see a snake or serpent. In Revelation, it's a dragon. Revelation 12, 3 through 5. Now, I love that this was part of the Bible that we just spent a whole series on. We spent a lot of time in Revelation. And that's like super cool. But what's even more cool is that we're seeing the same stuff. Nick talked about this last week. In the beginning, in the middle, in the end of scripture, it's the same. Verse three, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood... The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. 
She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Remember in Revelation, or for the first time, let me tell you, it's written by a guy named John, follower of, of Christ, and it's a vision from the Lord, right? It's kind of a vision of the eternal realm. So like outside of our space and time. And this section right here is called the woman and the dragon. And this, this reference to the one who will rule the nations with an iron scepter is a quotation out of Psalms 2. So back to the Old Testament, where God describes the Messiah and king that he is appointing to rule. And he talks about the futility of those who try to oppose him, a warning to serve God's anointed king, Jesus, because of the fate of all those who don't. Okay, so in this vision where Satan is like ready to try to destroy this child any way he can, on earth he's gotten Herod to try to kill all the babies. Didn't work. In the eternal realm, he's weighty. It doesn't work. Um, I'm going to take the extra time. Today's whatever. I'm gonna, I want you to read Psalm 2, I, or I'm going to read Psalm 2 to you because I don't have it up here. But I just want you to listen. So what, what is being quoted in Revelation, just listen for God's power as he foretells about the Messiah. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have instilled my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He says to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Here's that verse 9. You will break them as with an iron rod. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. All of it points to Jesus, his rule and his reign on earth and beyond, power and authority and dominion, and therefore victory is the Lord's alone. And if these are words that are familiar to you, just try to engage. Try to wrap your mind around them. Power and authority and dominion and therefore victory are the Lord's alone. There is no power in people's plans to rule apart from God, whether you're trying to rule the world or you're just trying to rule your schedule. There is no power in Satan's plans to kill the Messiah at his birth. As God becomes human to save us and be with us because he loves us, Satan has no power to change that. The one enthroned in heaven, in his sovereignty and unmatchable might, snatches the Christ, his son, up to his throne. 
the serpent and the dragon, Genesis and Revelation, the beginning of the world to the end of the world. Through all of scripture, through all of human existence and history, God is God. God is sovereign. God is purposeful. God is in control. God is beauty and light and life and goodness and peace incarnate. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this much. This is profound to me. But like, these are not words that describe God. Track with me here. They're not like character traits God has. God is these things. He is them. So whenever we see them or feel them or or experience them, we are seeing or feeling or experiencing God. Evidence of God with us, of him wanting to save us. And when we talk about being separated from God, when we talk about our sin, It's not just that we get like a smaller portion of these good attributes that describe God. It's not like settling for pretty good instead of amazing. To be separated from God is the complete absence of these things, who he is. This is the desperation. Lord, help me feel it more than I do. This is the desperation and this is the urgency of the gospel. It's not just like, oh, your life would be better with this. You have no life apart from me. You have none of these things because you don't have God. This is the power behind the God who saves us by being with us. By being with us, we get a peek at these things, beauty, light, joy, mercy. He is not a God who saves you out of obligation. And he's not annoyed to take time out of his day or out of his way to save you. He saves you by being with you because he wants to be with you. You, plural, like all of humanity, all of us in this room, but you individually, me, you. God wants to be with you you. Another one of those things that I can be like, "Mm," brush off. God wants to be with you. Do you know that? I'm asking myself, can you believe that? Can you receive that? Not just factually, but like in your soul, God wants to be with you. In your emotions, however like rampant or seldom they come in your emotions, can you receive that God wants to be with you? In your shame, can you receive? Sometimes when I'm trying to receive, I'm not feeling it. I'm like, I put my hands up. I don't know if that helps or not. Can you receive in my unbelief that God wants to be with me. In my view of the world, can I receive that God wants to be with me? 
Do you read your Bible and receive, God wants to be with me? Do you serve and work out of the grounding that God wants to be with you? Do you share with others because their lives would be forever changed if they knew that God wants to be with them? God designed you and he pursues you because he wants to be with you. He saves us by being with us because he wants to be with us. I'm going to pray and invite the band up.